Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Albert. We got Andy Gresh coming in for the takeaways like we did a couple weeks ago. And we got a great guest that's going to break down one of the real oddities of the 2020 season. And as always, we'll get to all your questions in the mailbag. Let's go. All right, welcome back in. It's the MMQB podcast with Albert Breer. We're post Memorial Day, which means we're really into the quiet time in NFL land. But. As is always the case, there is stuff going on, and because we've got the sort of flexibility to do it, we're going to continue tinkering with the podcast. Uh, this week, like we did a couple weeks ago, we're going to bring my buddy from WPRO, a uh, longtime, uh, longtime friend of mine from the Sports Hub in Boston and CBS Sports Radio, former URI offensive lineman. Is that enough for you, Gresh? Andy sure. Gresh? Keep, keep piling them on, brother. All there right. we go. Don't All forget right. author. That might be the one place I have you beat. You're a noted writer, yet I'm the guy who wrote a book. Yeah, yeah. I I guess you can't call me an author then. I've authored a lot of things, but I have not authored a book. So, uh, so yeah, the way we're going to do this and, and Gresh, I know you're good to go. We're going to go through the five takeaways for the week. We're going to discuss those five news topics. Then I'm going to bring in a great guest who's going to break down a very important subject for us going forward into the 2020, uh, NFL season. And we're going to get to all your questions in the mailbag. So Gresh, 
we're ready to go with the takeaways. And I'm going to start with takeaway number one. Charles Robinson of Yahoo Sports reported on Tuesday that head coaches may be able to return to team facilities as early as next week with mini camps possible in mid to late June. I, I have not heard this. Um, I would tell you what I, what I know is that they are they've discussed um, the idea of maybe players coming back and being welcomed back into buildings at some point in June to test protocols. Additionally, um, you know, I've heard that, uh, well, I know that the, the end date as negotiated between the league and the union has been for the offseason program is June 26th. And so anything that happens here is going to have to be negotiated. This is good news in that, like, we can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel with football coming. But I think that it, Gresh, I don't think they're going to, like, I don't think they're going to swing the doors open and, like, welcome all the players back in right away. And they have a joint committee on health and safety, a, a committee full of doctors that are working on what the best way to do this is. And, and actually, what I've heard is it could be a little bit more of a soft opening where, you have some players into two physicals and 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 do a little bit of work and all of that, and you slowly ramp it back up. Um, but again, the good news here is that these ideas all sort of point towards getting going in time for training camp. And if they start training camp in time, then of course that means the season's starting on time. Yeah, and the whole mini camps in June, I'd love to see the NFL just make the call right now okay, we're going to tweak the minicamp system. And it's normally you've got you've got June and then there's July, right? Normally you get yeah. like, you get two. Why not shrink it down to one, maybe make it a day longer, mitigate the risk, give each facility and each team a little more time to be able to put the protocols in place that they need to. And Bert, not to go too in, into the weeds in this, but when you think of it from a team standpoint, you don't have all the players that are living in the area. So when you start to think about getting people to where they need to be for mini camps, is it worth it? Will the coaches be safe? Are the facilities open? What's the situation in our state? It almost seems like a possible mini camp in June is damn near impossible in some places. So I wonder if the NFL and that whole, as you and I've talked about many times, the interest of fairness, that they maybe tweak the off-season minicamp structure a little bit because it kind of feels like the way we're trending that July might be possible, but June might not be. Yeah, I don't think it's like, like, and I think the other thing that you're running into is with certain states, the regulations locally that are going to prevent gatherings of the size that you'd need to run mini camps. Mm -hmm. And so I like my feeling is if you want to test protocols, that's fine, but you have to do it in a way that isn't going to compromise competitive balance. Right. Like, and so I, I don't know exactly how you do that, but maybe it's letting guys into lift weights for a week. You know what I mean? Like, and just seeing what happens when you reintroduce players into that environment and put them through the testing and some of the protocols. So, you know, you get that dry run and you're not flying blind when you get to the end of the July, um, but you're also, you know, preserving competitive balance from one team to the next. I don't think it's real fair, like to let say, you know, I don't know the Falcons or the Dolphins, like just resume their offseason program when you know, say the Seahawks or the 49ers right, can't start up by rule in their state. That doesn't to me like that's. Put it this way, eventually you may have to make those decisions, 
but we're in June. You don't have to make those decisions now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe you get to July and August and, and you got to tell these teams, like you got to move your training camp because like the rest of the, the country is ready to start the season on time. That's one thing. It's another thing to be doing it like in a point in the calendar when you don't really have to. Well, I, I we, we've talked about it in this space before. Uh, you know, old friend of Jim Justice there, uh, Sean Payton. I mean, that guy, he may have done, he may have handled this the best way yeah. to be able to have his players mentally prepared for this season. And that is go away and we'll tell you when to come back. Because if they're sticking to it, they've already started their work or their programs that we've talked about. And as long as those guys are in shape, that's where Peyton trusts his team. They're not going to have to worry about this. They're not going to have to pull the players. There's not, you know, they're going to be yeah, able to set I the date. It. Here's training camp. That is looking more and more like a brilliant move. I love what Peyton did. I mean, it shows trust in your players, right? Like those players are going to want to play for him now. Like you gave me the off season off. Like you gave me the option to do this on my own. And like, you know, like what he said to me, I thought was great. It was like, like, what am I going to, tell like like how am i gonna give drew Brees something over an online meeting that's gonna help him in september like I, like we don't need to be doing that like now our young players will bring them in but like is michael thomas or marshawn Lattimore going to be demonstrably better for having gone through some webex meeting in april probably not so like let's give them a chance to take care of their families and take a mental break and like and, and the only thing that he said to them you better come back the best in the best shape you've ever been in in july yeah, don't let me down. And yeah. as we all work through this ourselves, imagine the layers of complexities for these teams. And maybe the Saints will be maybe the Saints will be together out of the shoot. You know how I feel about it, and that there could be the real benefit, but they ain't gonna be worrying about it down there. And we'll, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, start going down the road of the old Ozarks, and I know that's Missouri <laughs> and stuff like that, but come on, there's been there's been some weird stuff going oh, yeah. on down there in the south. So yeah. hopefully everybody can hold it together down there. All right. Takeaway number two. I think that this was pretty obvious, but the Miami Herald's Barry Jackson reported on Tuesday that the Dolphins are not opposed to playing Tua Tungavaloa as a rookie. If you look at the history of it, it's very rare that a first-round quarterback sits for his entire rookie season. And what we know about Tua's injury is if he's cleared medically to play, the question really isn't, like, will he re-injure himself right away? The question is, is he going to have the longevity, right? Like, is his career going to yeah. last? And so I, I don't know if like, if the doctors clear him to play, like, I don't know that there's really added risk to him going out there. Like, I, I think the worry for most of the teams was, is this a guy in five or six years that's going to be in disrepair? And so like, look, like, I think you have to get a feel for the kid. Um, but there are certainly examples of players and quarterbacks who would tell you, I learned way more by going out there and playing than by sitting on the bench. And really a lot of that boils down to how a kid fit, like will handle failure. And to me, like this is a kid who can handle it. And if you do, if you need evidence of that, go and look what he did as an 18 year old true freshman coming in the national championship game down and in a stadium that was located, what? like 60 minutes from the other school's campus. Mm -hmm. Like he came into that game and he won that game for them as an 18 year old true freshman coming off the bench. Who'd never started a game. So I think if two is medically cleared and he shows he's picking up your offense, I have no problem with putting him in the lineup. 
If Tua's right, I think he's badass, and I'm with you. Here's the only caveat. I would have him sit a month. The first, I know I'm going to play him because, look, I don't think that now if the Dolphins are 4-0, then they reserve the right to change their mind, and then they can react accordingly. But I think there are a lot of people on this planet right now who would bet heavy amounts of money against them being 4-0 because we know it's probably pretty unrealistic. That said, I know I'm playing this guy this year if he's healthy. I let him sit a month. I let him see the game speed. I let him watch how Fitzpatrick prepares. However that all works out, I don't know if, um, hell, I don't even know if the dude they got from Arizona Rosen's even going to be there, but be that as it may, I'm playing this guy this year because Bird, I'm with you. He needs to get on the field. And, and if I may go on a little bit of a rant here, like, can we also drop this antiquated notion that you're going to draft people and they're going to be there for a full decade. Like, why do we not do this in sort of in, in, in line with the way the really good NFL career goes five, six, seven, eight years. These guys get beat up. They get mentally wore down. They make their money. They get out. They're going to be a hell of a lot more Luke Keekley's of the world, Bert, that right. are going to burn hot for a shorter period of time than have the dramatic romantic 15 or 16 year career. And if two attack of Iloa holds up seven years and plays great football, then what in the hell is the difference? Build it for five or six years, ride it out and then move on. Well, uh, there's a perfect example out there for you. Do you think the Colts regret drafting Andrew Luck because he only lasted? Okay. Like let's, let's look at the guys who are drafted around luck, right? Like, so if you want to make this argument and I'm think I'm making it for you here, all right, like so they take Andrew Luck first overall. Would you take Robert Griffin over him? No. Would you take Trent Richardson over him? No. Would you take Matt Khalil over him? No. Would you take Justin Blackman over him? No. Would you take Morris Claiborne over him? No. no. Would you take Mark Barron over him? No. Would you take Ryan Tannehill over him? No. Would you take Luke Keekley over him? Like that's a great player. No, you wouldn't. Would you take Stefan Gilmore over him? Great player. No, you wouldn't. Like justified first pick in the draft, and he only lasted what eight years seven years in the pros Mm -hmm. and so yeah i'm with you i think if you know if tua is andrew luck and like his career goes that way it was 100 percent worth it to take him where they took him with the fifth overall pick okay takeaway number three this is from last week the nfl tabled a proposal to incentivize minority hires into head coach general manager and quarterback coach positions while voting through a proposal to prohibit teams from blocking the upward mobility of young coaches and scouts I think they did the right thing here. I don't think that the draft pick compensation model worked at all. Um, I, I think it was just, I thought it was clunky and awkward. And the guys that I talked to that would have been affected by it sort of found it insulting. Uh, and I, I will say this, Gresh, the one thing they all brought up, and I thought this was super interesting. In fact, Mark Ross, who is a former Giants executive, brought this up on the podcast last week. What most of the guys said was, when we got in that room and you know we hit it off with the owner, we hit it off with the decision makers in the room, and we didn't get the job, the one thing that came, kind of came back, well, we felt more comfortable with this guy, or we felt more comfortable with that guy. And I got, these guys have pointed out, and this is fair, like that, you know, some guys have been like a lot of the guys who become you know GMs that are African Americans are guys that were promoted from within. Chris Greer is one. Uh, Sashi Brown was another in Cle- Cleveland. Uh, Ray Farmer, you know, Andrew Barry left and came back. Like there's a lot of examples of that. So I think that the the best thing the league can do is they can put people in the pipeline, identify good people early on, whether they're players or otherwise, 
put them in the pipeline early on and develop them, and then make sure that you network them. And this can be good for everybody, right? Like create events where you've got promising young scouts, promising young coaches, and get them in front of the owners. And that's good for everybody, right? That's good for the young coaches and scouts for obvious reasons. And it's good for the owners because they get a chance to kind of, you know, like pick people's brains on the way other organizations work and how they should be running their football team. I just think doing things like that makes more sense. Getting in at the grassroots, I just think to me, like that would be something that would affect real change and that would open the door up and then make the process more fair for everyone rather than I think what, you know, doing something which, I mean, was radical and felt to me like a PR move. Well, this is, um, you know, this issue is interesting because. When I look at what guys like Herman Edwards and Tony Dungy did, they opened doors for other people by making them coordinators. We know there's a coordinator issue right now in the NFL. And when you look at someone like Mike Tomlin, and I'm not saying that it's it's on Mike Tomlin to necessarily hire someone because they're African-American, but doors are normally open by other African-American coaches who get to a certain level to where if they become a coordinator, let me make someone a quarterback coach who, yes, deserves it, but also deserves the opportunity to eventually have a door open for them. What I would also like to see, Bert, is at the NFL level or at the team level, make it, try to make it to where these coaches who want to break in can at least live. Not make, you know, we've heard about the whole story of I was a grad assistant for $8,000 and a meal card. There are not a lot of people that are willing to go through that nowadays just to be able to get into coaching. And if so, they're not the kind of people who make money by playing the sport. You know, part of the reason why there aren't as many players getting into coaching is because, number one, coaching sucks. Number two, they make it suck because they don't pay you nothing on the lower levels. And if you made any money in the NFL, unless you really loved it, why would you go through it? So there got to be other parts of the system that need to be addressed than just throwing some draft pick compensation because you are hiring someone that maybe you normally wouldn't have given a chance to. And it almost looks like a bribe. And quickly, I also saw something from Marvin Lewis, who was talking about this. I I didn't read the article, but I saw a headline about Jim Crow laws or whatever. Listen, that guy is the problem right now because he took an opportunity to go interview with the Cowboys to allow the Cowboys to be able to meet a requirement. And they brought in a guy who they knew they were never going to hire. And that interview could have gone to someone, maybe, and shame on Jerry Jones for doing it this way too, but that interview could have gone to someone who, even if they didn't get the job, would have benefited by preparing and going through the process. So if we can start to look at this issue from a global perspective, maybe we would have a real opportunity of fixing it and enabling people to have opportunities up and down the coaching board, other than just doing something short term to try to patchwork a problem no one really wants to fix i think the one thing too like the other thing is it's just you know identifying the good young people and i'll give you guys some names marcus brady the quarterbacks coach in the colts is somebody who was brought up to me i believe he's one of only two african-american quarterbacks coaches in the league all right so he's on the coaching side on the play on the on the scouting side ian cunningham with the philadelphia eagles ryan poles with the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Both those guys were ACC offensive linemen who 
like work in winning organizations who've been brought up by good people in the business. And, you know, I think getting those names out there earlier, and maybe it's on all of us in the media to do it, but it's just making sure that you've got the right names too. To me, that's such an important thing. I agree. And it's, uh, it's multi-layered, it's complex, but it's fixable because there are going to be people who will see it through. And let's also remember this, while there are a certain amount of head coaching jobs, uh, you know, when you really think about it in the global perspective, there aren't a lot of them. I mean, there's only 32 head coaches in the NFL. That's being one of 32 sort of CEOs or heads of operations in the world for what they do. These are very elite jobs. And I hope people remember that as yeah. well, that it's not, well, this number says it should be this and that number should say it that. There's no question hiring has got to get better across the way in the NFL but realize that the person you're putting into that job, if you're the owner and you screw it up, you're probably hurting your own bottom line for a half decade or maybe even more if you then turn around and screw up the next one. No doubt. All right. Takeaway number four, Troy Vincent told my old buddy Peter King that the NFL, quote, failed miserably with the pass interference rule. The Sky Judge will be discussed this week. I think there's a high probability that it goes in at least on an experimental basis. And, um, you know, I know what a lot of people are worried about is that it being, it it becomes the mess that the, uh, it becomes the mess that the PI rule was, well, I'm going to tell you why it won't be. The reason the PI rule didn't work is because it became a point of contention between the coaches and the officials. And one of the reasons why is because the coaches, I believe correctly organized last year because they wanted to find a way to make sure that the officials got more calls right because of the way that the 2018 season ended and because there was a general frustration with the way that certain things were being missed in very big spots. So they viewed the PI rule as a sort of compromise, whereas the officials viewed it as infringing on what they do. And so where the coaches thought we were taking a step towards doing this guy judge, the officials saw it as almost like a shot at the job they were doing. That led to acrimony. That led to the the rule itself as it was written being completely mishandled and now going out the window. I think the reason why this is different, Gresh, is because that was approached as sort of an edict towards the officials. This is going to be a resource for the officials. The booth umpire, the quote-unquote sky judge, will report to the head referee, and the referee is going to have jurisdiction over him, And he is going to be a resource to the crew, not an antagonist to the crew, a resource to the crew. So he's going to have the benefit that we all have on our couch, which is all these angles in crystal clear HD. We're giving that to the officiating crew. And if you're worried about delays in the game, there are only two spots where you can intervene, either in the first 15 seconds of the play clock. So once the play clock has 25, he can't buzz down anymore. Or if the head official buzzes up to him. I think that'll keep it to where it's just obvious misses where the, if, if it's obvious to all of us, you know, we're watching the TV, it's obvious to the guy upstairs, he buzzes down, says pick up that flag or throw the flag. Very, very simple. I don't think it's a big deal um, to implement it. Um, I think it's, it's long overdue. And to me, Gresh, I just, you know, we saw it work in the AAF, you know, albeit in a, a very, we had a limited exposure to it, but if we saw it work in the AAF, I think it can work in the NFL. Yeah, this is a no-brainer. Honestly, I don't I don't think we really need to, you know, break this one down super in depth. Uh you're right. And that's the difference. It's a resource 
for the officials versus, hey, it's because you guys suck. Uh, and look, I, I, if I'm an official, I'd be now getting to the point to where, okay, fine, have all this stuff in there. Because if I, yes, you're going to grade me hard anyway, whether you're going to watch film or whether it's going to be on TV. So it's up to me to try to do my job the best I can. And at least I know there's a fail safe and that there's a way for something to be corrected because everyone at home now gets to watch it and know that it should be corrected. So I'd like to think that some officials are starting to come around on this and and understand that, yeah, it's a compliment to the broadcast. It's just incumbent on you to try to do the job best you can. And if you're perfect, great. And if you're not, hopefully there's something there to catch you. So to me, this is a no-brainer. Again, it makes no sense. Like the idea that I can sit on my couch and I have the advantage of all those angles and all that HD, all that HD footage. Like I have all that. And all I need is a remote and a cable subscription. Right. And the guy who is like basically running the game does not have the benefit of that. The coaches have it. The players have it. Right. Like, cause they got people upstairs that are, that are watching it. So everybody has it except the officiating crew. You, You should it's simple. Just give it to them. All right. Takeaway number five, like the match to me, uh, Brady, Manning, Tiger, Phil, I thought it was a big success. Uh, like Peyton's jokes were rehearsed, which we expected. Uh, Brady showed a little bit of his competitive side, which he golfed like me on the fir- on the, on the front nine, a little bit better. He looked a little more like a pro athlete on the back nine. He did. Um, I, I thought there were so many good aspects to it. And you know what I'm going to say? Like my, my, my big takeaway like, I think what we're starting to see, like, I, I don't know if you've turned on the soccer um, at all, but like I turned on the soccer before they started playing the crowd noise. And I was fascinated to sort of hear, even if it wasn't even like in English, you know what I mean? But like to hear like the players kind of shouting back and forth, you could hear it in an empty stadium. And like here you have that, like where it's, um, you know, you could hear these guys kind of the banter back and forth. And I mean, Gresh, like I, I think like if we do go forward with empty stadiums for the next four or five or six months, whatever it is, like I think there's like a one-time opportunity there for the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, the NHL to kind of give people a taste of the game that they've never seen before. And like I even think if I'm a player or a coach, like maybe you're amenable to it just because you know it's not permanent, you know? So I think like that part of it, like getting to see the kind of interaction made the match. Like it was great. Like seeing Phil give like Brady basically a golf lesson was fantastic. And so I I just like look at this and I'm like, all right, like, like just for these four or five or six months, just please give us that. I don't need the crowd noise. I don't need chanting. I don't need music. Just like give me the interaction between the players and coaches. Yeah, and I think it worked for those guys because, yes, like some of the jokes were written for Peyton, and he's pretty good at that stuff. But, like, you know, him telling the story of uh, ticking Tiger off and being up, like, what was it, five? Or well, he was up, like, four with five to go, and then yep. his uh, the caddy Stevie Williams stopped giving him his advice, and Tiger ended up schooling him coming, in, uh, coming down the stretch, like – that's good stuff, and when you can incorporate it into an event like that, I think it works. Look, if it were me, I know we're never going to get to this point, but if I'm running Major League Baseball, I'd say to every one of those guys, listen, you're going to be mic'd up. People can pay to listen to these feeds, so you're going to make your money off of it and do a little bit like kind of what they do with NASCAR where you can listen to the radio and you can hear 
If a driver gets hot, you can hear him sort of talking that way. And, and you could take in that experience as the driver's going through it. I know they'll never get there because there's too much proprietary information or, you know, what if a athlete says something that he doesn't want to get out there? They'd be thinking too much about what they didn't want to say if they were completely mic'd up. But I'm with you. More The more of that, the better. And I thought that event came off great. I thought Brady and Manning both came off great. They raised a ton of money, and the ratings were like through the roof. It just does go to show the immense popularity of both Brady and Manning, and that Manning will be going into the Hall of Fame way before Brady will. It's just insane. I think all four of them. Like I, I, I don't know. I thought all four of them came off good. You know yep, what I mean? I like, agree. And yeah. like Peyton, and they all had their quirks. Like Brady had his like little psycho competitive thing there when he wasn't playing well in the front nine. Peyton came off like a little, like a little hokey. You know what I mean? Like you expected he would, and a little rehearsed, like you expected he would. Like Phil, I thought came off great. Like kind of like like every man ish, even if he's not really that all the time. And obviously. Right. He's not like an everyman, but like kind of like what his persona has been. He came off that way. And, and Tiger, the same thing. Tiger kind of came off as, you know, a little tight, but like, you know, you could kind of, it made them all like a little relatable. So I thought it was a, like you raise all the money and that's number one, right? Yes. But number two, I think these guys actually came off pretty well. And I think it was a win for all four of them. It goes to show the popularity of the National Football League that two all-time great quarterbacks, one still playing and one who has clearly gone on to being a great commercial pitchman and all that stuff, who's sort of reinvented himself a little bit. Uh, the popularity of those two guys to be able to draw in those numbers with those kind of golfers. And by the way, that both of those guys treated them like partners. Like you never heard Phil, you know, be like, Brady, you suck. Get off my course. There was never anything like that. You know, they were all treated with respect. They all figured out how to collaborate and work together. It was a fascinating watch. There's no question. And it was there any chance that Barkley was going to make the bogey on 18. There was none. I mean, come no. on. And you know what else too? Like, if they uh, feel free to steal this idea, like, can you imagine? Like, how cool would it be to have what Brady had out there with Phil basically giving him a golf lesson? Oh, like, dude. Play, like, like that's what. Like, like honestly, if you want to raise some money, Tiger, Phil, like, like auction yourself off doing what Phil did with Tom. Like, you could make like, some someone out there, some billionaire who who loves playing golf and has money to burn. Like would probably spend five million bucks on that. Oh no, question. Play eighteen with him, and he would sort of critique your swing along yep. the way. Well, I tell you though, that'd be that be if you play with a real hacker who just happened to have money. Yeah. You know, if you got one of these people, some yahoo's just got more money to burn than he knows what to do with, and the next thing you know, you know, you're out there with uh, some <laughs> ham and egger who's just bugging the hell out of you for eighteen holes. It'd be a little vetting that'd have to go on, but you're right, that'd be a pretty penny to be able to do that with like Tiger or Phil. And I would want to do, believe it or not, I would want to do it more with Phil. I'd watch him out there with a hacker. I would. <laughs> that would be almost more entertaining. Well, you just want it opened up so that you could actually partake in this <laughs> yeah. because I've seen you play golf before. I need a lot I need a lot of help, no question about it. All right, Gresh, always appreciate it. We'll get to our special guest right after this.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. 
old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so... For our guest this week, I want to bring in a guy who gave us a real perspective on what the, what coaches might be facing in 2020. I had a conversation with Sean Payton over the weekend. You guys can read more of that in the Monday Morning Quarterback column. And Sean had mentioned how he feels like he's in an advantage right now because he's been in New Orleans for 15 years. And so he doesn't need to go over a lot of the stuff that coaches normally go over this time of year because so many of his guys are in tune to what they're doing in that building. It's so embedded. And he mentioned how his experience in 11 sort of led him to think that way. And the other thing he said was, if you look back in 11, only two coaches that were new coaches made the playoffs. One was Jim Harbaugh with the 49ers, and the other is our guest right now. Uh, one of my favorite people covering the NFL uh, over the last 15 years, John Fox. Welcome in. Well, it's great to be with you, Albert. I appreciate you having me on. And uh Oh, yeah. You know, Sean, that's a good memory on his part, because, in fact, that is true during the lockout. Uh, you know, the new coaches were, quote, supposed to be under a disadvantage. But, um, you know, the, the 49ers and the Broncos both were able to make it to the playoffs that year. What do you remember about like that year? So you, you get the job in January, right? And so yep. you know, you're getting to know John Elway, um, you know, working. With, I think it was Brian Sanders at the time was the GM, yep. right? Um, yep. and, you're, and you're putting together your staff. What do you remember about how you guys were approaching the first few months of that offseason, knowing that it could be a pretty different look? Well, I think, um, you know, obviously we were putting in new systems offensively and defensively. Uh, uh, Mike McCoy had been with the team, so he, I retained him as the uh, offensive coordinator. But, but uh, uh, we were new as far as on defense. And so really our guys didn't know our systems yet. Uh, but, you know, really the way we compensated for was, uh, you know, was really being simple and starting slow and not over installing uh, early. Dennis Allen was our defensive coordinator. So, um, you know, I thought that was critical uh, in being new was we didn't know what kind of shape they were going to be in. Um, we didn't really know the team. I, they had to wear name tags because. Uh, you know, the star players I knew, but a lot of, you know, top to bottom of the roster, um, you know, I didn't even know the players' names when we finally got them when we started training camp. How'd you kind of, well, how, like, let's, let's start there then. How'd you sort of try to bridge the gap there as far as, like, not knowing the guys? Like, w like was there anything that you guys did to try to, like, I don't know, shorten the learning curve a little bit there? Well, we, we did have more meeting time than normal. So, you know, typically you're kind of set on how you do things. You kind of, you know, chalk it, walk it, and then do it. But uh, during the early part of camp, um, really, we met almost exclusively. Very little on the field time because we really wanted to ease them in physically because, you know, everybody's in different kind of shape, you know, as far as uh, um, the way guys do it on their own. So we really just had more meeting time. And in those meetings, uh, really, um, you know, we had name tags. So, you know, the coaches 
know better and, and got to know them. Same thing when you went into the, uh, you know, the lunchroom or cafeteria, uh, you know, just really try to spend time and get to know the players and build that relationship. Did you, did anybody show up like horribly out of shape? Um, there, there were a few, uh, there, yeah. but you know, that's, that's kind of my, my five or 10% rule, you know, that no matter what, you know, you're always going to have that five or 10%. Uh, so it was, it was pretty true to form. And, uh, you know, we just brought them along a little bit slower and, you know, some of them sometimes are good players. So you need them and you don't want soft tissue injuries when, um, you know, you need guys out there on the field when you are out on the field. That was something that Sean mentioned too, was like the soft tissue injuries. Like where you got like, how do you actually like as a coach, like monitor that? Like when the, when these coaches get to camp, I'm sure they're all going to be looking for the same stuff that you were looking for then. Like, like, how are you actually monitoring that? Well, you know, it used to be just sight. You know, I mean, I can remember working for Chuck Noel, you know, back with the Steelers and he goes, oh, the team just looks tired. You know, so, so for so many years, Guys just went on the feel of their team. Now, you have to know your team to do that. In those days, it was before free agency. So, I mean, you, you'd have the same guys for 10 years. So it was, it was a little bit, you had more carryover for sure. Um, you know, I think now with the tracking devices, you know, people do use different ones. But now you have GPS tracking devices where you can actually, you know, monitor their workload, and especially for your skilled people, you know, uh, you know, in most uh, cases, especially the wide receivers, you know, do a lot of full speed running. And those are the guys you have to monitor the most. Was there like an uh-oh moment, like when somebody pulled up lame or something like that, like early in camp where you just kind of like had it, all right, like we got to watch this? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one time uh, Jeff Rogers was my special teams coach and, uh, um, you know, we had a receiver that was like, wasn't supposed to be on special teams. And I was like, uh, Jeff, what are we doing with Demarius Thomas? I mean, he's not even on return teams anymore. He's just exclusively a wide receiver. And this was in a staff meeting, and he goes, uh, Coach, you might want to check over on field two. Peyton's got all those wideouts running two-minute drills. You know, so here I am. I'm chewing out our special teams guy because during special teams, the receiver shouldn't be running. Uh, Peyton was such a grinder. He had, you know, all the receivers over there, you know, doing two-minute no-huddle. Uh, and they were getting too much running. So that was kind of on me, and I had to go back and adjust that. So when you say you cut it down in 11, what do you – like, Like, how would you – if you can dumb that down for me, like like cutting down the amount of stuff that you were putting on the players scheme-wise, like how, how could you best explain that? Well, I think, you know, rather than, you know, hit a whole – what normally training camp is, is you install for the season. Uh, during that particular amount of time. Um, and there's a schedule for that. You know, actually installs or installations mean really you're going through, you know, uh, you know, just like even how to huddle, you know, offensively and defensively. Uh, how, what our uh, verbiage is for how we call formations or even on defense, how do you identify formations? So there's just a lot of learning that takes time. Um and so oh, the install, like there's day one installed of camp, day two install, day three install, and a lot of on both sides of the ball, offensively, defensively, and even special teams, um, everybody has an installation schedule. So we just slowed it way down to where we didn't install for the whole season. We installed for basically the first quarter. You know, we broke the season down into four quarters, four, 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 four game segments. And so, um, 
we we just kept it really simple. We didn't install for all 16 games like you normally would in a full training camp. Um, and we cut down the actual field time and actually spent more time in meetings. Uh, and, you know, that kind of uh, intensified as it went. But just to see where everybody was, um, you know, kind of give us a chance to get to know our team uh, and build those relationships because that's a lot of it is mental. Uh, and then just, you know, the feeling of the team uh, and, you know, basically cut it down really by three quarters uh, and kind of spent the first quarter of the season um, basically like you would a preseason. Okay. So like, and that does that mean like playing with personnel groups, like using different guys in different spots and trying to like spending those first four weeks trying to figure your team out? Is that what you're saying? Or yeah, that and and even with the guys that uh, you know maybe we had met, had a relationship before the lockout, um, you know we had some leaders in that room and and uh, were able to to get them way but um you know get to know them better that way because uh, you need leadership in that locker room uh, and we were fortunate that we did but i think um you know really it was just not over installing not putting too much in and get really good at what we had in and that was true on all three phases offense defense and special teams did you guys have to make up for that? Like eventually, like I'd assume eventually, like if that's something you always did, right? Like you're always getting ready for, you're installing for 16 games normally. Now you're installing for four. Did you guys have to figure out a way to make up for that later on then? Yeah, I think, you know, mo- mostly Albert with your uh, new opponents, you know what I mean? Like uh, when you go into a new division for us, they were all new opponents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in Sean Payton's case, you know, they're, they're in the you know, NFC South. They know that division pretty well. At least they know the personnel and the matchups pretty well. Um, you know, for us, we're coming in, it was, you know, we were all new. So even uh, you're, you're, typically your new opponents are a little more difficult because you don't know them as well. Uh, you know, when you're playing interconference, uh, um, you know, your new teams that aren't in your division. All right. So. Like on top of all of that, you guys also had a quarterback competition that summer. Um, like how difficult was it to like really – and I think it was – if I'm not mistaken, it was Tim, it was Kyle, yep. and it was Brady, right? So they're the three exactly. guys. Like how did that complicate things? Because I, I remember how much attention there was on it. And like I, it seemed like everything Tebow did was like covered like, you know, covered like it was the Beatles. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. You know, I know uh, even flash forward when I went to Chicago with, uh, when we drafted Mitchell Trubisky, everybody was kind of almost on that. And I remember making reference even to our media is like, trust me, I went through the team, Tim Tebow craze and nothing ever touched that. I mean, it was, Albert, I, I mean, I look back in my, 16-year head coaching career, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it was just, it was it was crazy, especially when he got in and he went on a 6-0 and run as the starter. It became even more crazy. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're right. It was, um, uh, you know, we went with the veteran because it was, you know, he knew the system better. We had a package for Timmy, which ended up helping us when we made the change midseason uh, because we just grew – uh, the Tim Tebow package and, you know, we're able to go on and make the playoffs and win a playoff game. Did the fact that you guys were, I mean, I, I don't know the fact that you guys were doing some stuff that was different. And I know, you know, obviously Mike McCoy and Adam Gase and those guys were all involved in that. Um, 
like, did that actually maybe help you that year? Like when you did decide, all right, we're going with Tim and I see, I'm looking at your schedule now, your bye week was week six. It was right around then maybe when you guys turned to Tim, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Like, did it maybe help you guys that you were doing something that was a little different, that wasn't the most complicated thing in the world, but also wasn't something that teams are seeing every day in the NFL at that time? Yeah, well, it definitely helped. I mean, um, you know, I can I can just remember the things he ad-libbed and made happen. You know, like I talked with uh, John Harbaugh this past year with Lamar, and, uh, you know, I was like, you know, I see a lot of similar things and different types of options and who you're optioning. Um, it slows pass rushers down. It's unique to the NFL. Uh, it's been around, but but not to the degree I think you're going to start to see it with some of the, you know, athleticism at quarterback now, uh, you know, throughout the league. Uh, it's something I think is here to stay. But um, no doubt that it, it, it helped us uh, because it was new to people. Uh, people didn't really know it. And you don't get the whole season to, you know, adjust and react and play those different kind of run schemes. So uh, it was really a disadvantage to a lot of the, the defenses. And plus, even the coaches in the NFL and defense hadn't seen as much option. That's uh, changing now. But back then it was, uh, you know, even more conducive to college football than it was NFL football. So it was almost like a like like a second install, like you're reinstalling a new offense, like there, like right there in the bye week, right? And I remember talking to Adam about this. I think they he called guys at colleges who'd run this sort of stuff. So you guys almost yes. went through it twice, right? Like where you're rebuilding the offense for Tim on the fly. Yeah, and I think you know, really, uh, I kind of can remember we started Timmy in Detroit for against Detroit at home, and yeah. we tried stay with our offense you know not change it you know we had a couple of Timmy plays but not not exclusively and it didn't go so well we got killed yeah. and you know I brought the offensive staff in and I said look guys we're, we're not doing this all right we're we're going to be doing things that Tim's more comfortable things he did at Florida uh the things he's more comfortable with and we just expanded and you know we ran went to Kansas City I think we ran the ball like 60 times uh and threw it seven and, and, and we won the game. And in Kansas City, we Denver hadn't done very well in Kansas City over the years up to that point. And, and then, uh, you know, we went more to a run style, you know, even quarterback runs, play actions off of it, and it fit Timmy's skill set better. Do you, like, so for that team, like, do you think, like, the way you guys handled July, August, and getting everybody ready for the season – when you finally did like flip the switch and then you get to November and all of a sudden, like all the, <laughs> the weird stuff starts happening and you're winning games. Like, do you think that the way that you guys maybe handled July and August, like paid off then in some way? No question. And, you know, sometimes, you know, in our profession, Albert, they talk about less is more, you know, sometimes coaches can work guys too hard, work them too long and actually has a negative effect. Um, you know, when you kind of ease them into it and don't do as much early in camp. I mean, when I first came in the league, 1989, I mean, we'd have bull in the ring to start training camp, you know, uh, you know, or three on three and, you know, same foot, same shoulder. Everybody learned how to strike a blow. And, you know, like, but you had 95 guys at camp then in right. those days. So things have definitely changed and adjusted. But I think with the lockout, 
uh, easing the, the players into it, especially with a veteran team. And we had some veterans on that team. I mean, you know, Champ Bailey, you know, guys that have been around uh, NFL football for a long time, uh, Brian Dawkins. You know, these were veteran guys that you don't want to be running around too much because they get worn down. But but it definitely helped us both mentally and physically, you know, in the second half and fourth quarter of that season. Like you guys were fresher than other teams late in the year. You no know? doubt. No doubt, no doubt. And I think, you know, there was an aura about that team, you know, whether it's the Tim Tebow effect or however you want to, uh, you know, call it. I think, um, uh, you know, we were definitely a fresh and energized football team. Yeah, like weird shit kept happening at the end. <laughs> so it was, I mean, there, there were games I go back and I still, it's one of the most enjoyable seasons I ever had in football. It was just, it was just so phenomenal. You know, there were games in the fourth quarter. There's no way we should have won, and we found ways. Yeah, I think about, like, the the one that, like, sticks out to me for one reason or another was, I, I think it was Marion Barber fumbling, right? Like, yes, was, the Chicago game in yeah. Denver. Yeah, and it looked like that thing was over. I think they were running the clock out, right? Like, yes. You know, and somehow, yes. and somehow, like, like Marion Barber, and it may not have even been a forced fumble. I can't remember. He may have just dropped the ball, but it was just, it was, I think that was at the height of it. Like, like the, oh, my God, this keeps happening. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if I mean, he he was the one thing to do, he ran out of bounds once, and then he fumbled. Uh, but at the end, if he stays in bounds there, I mean, there's no way we get the ball back. Right. Uh, so it was just, it was crazy, you know. And then Tim would run around and make things happen. You know, earlier in the game, people were pressuring more, playing more man to man. And then late in games, they would start playing soft. And then invariably, he'd run around and make some crazy thing happen. Uh, that would, you know, be a chunk play and, you know, we would score points. Do you think things might have been like a little different for Tim if he had come into the league in 2020, like with like all the different stuff that's happening offensively, or do you think he was just too limited as a passer? Well, you know, I think at the end of the day, the the best thing Tim had is he had an air uh, of confidence. Um, he was a really fierce competitor. He trained like a linebacker. Um, I mean, so like, you know, everybody just sees the field on Sundays, but, you know, that, that preparation time uh, during the week, whether it's, you know, meeting time, which he was very, always very well prepared, worked really hard physically. I mean, he'd, he'd work out and do the same weights as running backs or tight ends. Um, he just, you know, he had leadership skills and he inspired his teammates. And that was something that, uh, you know, I think gets lost sometimes when they talk about uh, the effect Tim had, not just as a pure quarterback and a pure passer, but uh, the other skills that he had uh, being a part of a football team. The one other thing I wanted to ask you about that, that about that 2011 year, and I think that this is another interesting aspect of it. Like when you think of the Joe Burrows, the Chase Youngs, the, you know, the, the Tua Tunga Valoas of the world on that team, you guys had Von Miller and Von was the second pick in the draft and he winds up winning defensive rookie of the year that year. Like if there's a key to getting a young player ready, cause I've heard a lot of this from, from, uh, from coaches that like we needed, we, like, like we emphasize drafting smart players this year because that's the only chance they're going to have to succeed as rookies. Right. Right. Like, what would you say the key was to getting some, I, obviously the talents there, that's unquestionable, but like, what would you say the key was to getting rookies ready to go and getting one of those guys ready to go to the level where he won rookie of the year? 
See, Albert, I think, and this is an oversimplification, but I always tried to liken it to running track. If you ran the mile your whole life, all right, and you got, you trained for the mile, and there's different training tools you use, all right? Well, liken the mile to a college football season, okay? You're playing 12 games, Okay, so that's it. And you train for that and you've done it for four years or, you know, it's, it's, and it's, and then high school, it's maybe 10 to 12 games, uh, with playoffs. And then you train that way your whole career. And then all of a sudden, all right, you go to the NFL, you train for the mile your whole career, and then you embark on an NFL season. You know, you count the four preseason games, you know, plus 16. That's almost a two mile. Right. not only do you not train for it, I mean, they tell you halfway through the season, okay, hey, you guys, we got another half of, of our race. And, you know, they, they call it the rookie wall. Well, it's real. It takes a rookie or a college football player really a year, all right, to actually understand how to pace yourself and how to handle mentally and physically you know, a 16 game regular season plus four preseason games and plus extended games if you make the playoffs. So uh, truly is it's almost next to impossible because they don't know what to expect. They have no idea. And they figure that out their rookie year and then they do a better job their second third, and the rest of their career. So like with Vaughn, like getting him ready that year, though, and I'm looking at the numbers here. I mean, 11 and a half sacks, 19 quarterback hits, 29 quarterback hurries. Like, did you guys have to be creative in, in, in finding a way to make sure that you could, that, 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 that he'd be in the best position as a rookie because you did lose May and June and because he was coming in in kind of a fire drill type of situation at the end of July? Well, what, what, was, what helped Albert is he's got, just genetically, he has unbelievable physical skills. And, um, but you can, you know, I was always used to say, you know, the most important muscle in your body is your brain. Because once that muscle cramps or freezes up, everything freezes up. So part of it is just keeping them fresh mentally. Uh, and and, and our, I think uh, Richard Smith was our linebacker coach that year. And Richard's been around a long time. And he did a great job of handling, you know, and, and as far as his meeting time. And, you know, keeping our guys fresh was really critical uh, for that season. So it was really like with him, like it was just kind of keeping like him as a rookie mentally in the right place. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think that's really true because these guys will burn out. And like I said, once, once they, you know, you're mentally, you shut down. I mean, really it's, that's hard to overcome. So I was going to ask you what the best piece of advice you would have for say like Joe judge with the giants or, or Matt rule with the Panthers, um, you know, or Kevin Stefanski with the Browns would be, but it sounds to me like your best piece of advice would really be just to kind of, make sure that you manage the workload on everybody. Yeah, and I think starting slow, build into it, uh, because it's twofold. When you're new, you don't know your team, all right? You got to get to know these guys. And I'm talking about the relationships because you spend a lot of time with them, is getting to know them, kind of what, what their buttons are, you know, how to motivate them, you know, don't overload them mentally uh, or physically, and particularly early, Uh and really what it forces you to do is to get to know your football team and let them get to know you. And I think uh, 
you know, those relationships, I think, with teams that have had success have been able to maintain that, keep continuity. Uh, if you look across the league, whether it's the Belichick's or the Sean Payton's or the Andy Reid's, you know, um, that always helps because, you know, the building knows you, you know the building, and there's a lot of moving parts to an NFL building. Do you have a favorite story from that 11 season then? You said that was one of your favorite seasons in football, like whether it's a practice, a meeting, a like a, a game, whatever it is, is there something that sticks out? Like is, is your best story from that season? Oh, you know, I just, I, I, I look back and really uh, we were in Miami and Miami is a tough place to play. You know, everybody talks about how new England runs that or owns that division, but the, even new England has struggled in Miami over the years when you look at venues Um but uh, actually up to that point as a coach, not even, not even as a head coach, but as an assistant coach, you know, for 30 years, I, I think I'd won, I'd won one game in that stadium. And we're down. I, I mean, there's no way we're going to win this game. I think it's 13 nothing. Even writers I knew from Denver were, had already written the story. And it was, you know, Timmy's first start was back. They were celebrating their national championship uh, down there in Miami. I'm talking about Florida's. And all of a sudden – I mean, we, we just get a spark, and Timmy did it all. Uh, I mean, he ran, he, he scored the touchdown. Then he it was on a scramble. Then he did a two-point play. And, and there's just no way we're winning that game. And it was the most unbelievable comeback that I, I think I've ever witnessed, uh, you know, in football, not just in my career. And so, like, it, it, like, is there something real to that then? That whole thing about he just finds a way, he wills his team. Like, there's something real to that with him, huh? Oh, no doubt. And I think, you know, that's what people forget. You know, they all want to criticize his throwing. And, and look, he was not the most accurate passer. Uh, we had a coach one day, you know, and Timmy was left-handed, and actually asked him in practice, are you sure you're not right-handed? <laughs> um you know, and that's a true story. But the guy, one thing I want to make sure everybody understands is he did, you know, he was the catalyst to that. And I, I really believe that. And it was a, a remarkable experience. And, you know, I feel blessed that I got a chance to be a part of it. Okay. One last thing. I, I like, I just thought of this because you brought up the name. And before I let you go, I, I want to ask you about kind of what Mitch Trubisky's up against this year. Because you were, you were there when he was drafted in Chicago. And he's got to deal with the whole, I mean, like, look, like he's dealing with the whole comparison to Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson because that was his draft class. Uh, when you watch Mitch, and and, you, and I'm sure you followed him to some degree the last couple of years since he have been out of, of there, um, do you think he still has a chance? Like, like, and, and, and what do you remember about coaching him? And, and do you think he still has a chance to fulfill the potential that 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 obviously people in the Bears organization saw when when they took him second overall. Yeah, you know, Albert, you know, we plugged him in. I think it's going to be after game four, but I, I never forget it was a Monday night game. We're playing the Minnesota Vikings. And and right then they were playing very well. Their defense was probably number one in the league. And we're starting Mitch Trubisky. And I remember, you know, looking at one of my coaches and saying, okay, Monday Night Football, Minnesota freaking Vikings, and this is your 14th game you've started since high school. And so, you know, Mitch only started 13 games yeah. at Chapel Hill, and here was going to be his 14th game. And, you know, he really played really well, and he threw a pick right at the end, which was the difference in the game. I think we lost 17-14. Um, 
But what I did see in Mitch is that he, he was super competitive. Um, you know, I think the, the cards are stacked against him right now um, just because it's such, uh, you know, there's such scrutiny. Um, but I do think he has the makeup to do it. And I root for him because that year we started him, uh, that was his first game. And then we, you know, we really helped him a lot. We ran the ball a lot. Most people would say too much, but, you know, you didn't want to scar him in situations. I remember a game in Baltimore, it was a critical deal. It was a really hard game. They've never lost to a rookie quarterback in their organization's history. And we went to Baltimore and actually beat them. And it was a key third down pass that uh, Mitch completed. It was third and 12. And he hit one for 14 down the middle on a middle read. And we kicked the game winning field goal to beat Baltimore uh, against a very, very good defense. So he has it in him. Um, and again, I don't know all his supporting cast now. What I mean by that, I don't know all his coaches and the people that are, that are in his ear every day, but uh uh, he has the makeup to overcome this. Yeah, and I, like I, it's probably a tough deal being compared against those two, also against Mahomes and Watson. Like, which I think kind of like amplifies the issue, you know. And and, it, and it's not going to go away, Albert. You know, what I mean, it, was, it wasn't going to go away. You know, his rookie year, it wasn't going to go away. You know, the next year or last year. So, and it's not going to go away moving forward. All right. He's John Fox, former head coach of the Panthers, Broncos, and Bears. Foxy, always great catching up with you. Albert, always fun, man. Thanks for inviting me. And, uh, hey, stay safe and stay healthy. You too. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Appreciate John Fox coming out. We're going to jump right into the mailbag. You guys know how this works. Every week I put the call out for questions on Twitter. As we've worked through the pandemic because of uh, the situation here where we can't do the voicemails, the emails aren't as compatible, we've gone back to the old school way of doing it, which is the six-pack. So I put the call out for questions on Twitter. You ask, I pick six. If I pick yours, you get an answer right here on the podcast. I'm also answering some of your questions in the mailbag, which will be up on the website on Wednesday morning. Question number one is from Don Ridenour, a loyal listener and reader. Uh, that's at Don Ridenour. Who wins more in his last stop? Philip Rivers or Tom Brady? Don, I, I think that those two teams are going to be relatively even this year. I think the Colts are a contender. I think the Bucks are a contender. I think both teams are probably around nine or ten wins and both very much in the playoff hunt in 2020. I'm going to tell you Brady wins more because I think Brady plays longer. I think it's possible that uh, that that Rivers plays into 2021. I think it's more likely that Brady plays into 2021. And the reason why I, Brady's goal is Brady's goal is and has been to play till he's 45. All right, so he signs the two year deal. He's left it open ended that he could play beyond that. Like Rivers has said, you know, he'd like to play multiple years, but he's got a hard stop on his career. He wants to coach his son. Um, he just took the high school coaching job down in Alabama, and his son is now a sixth grader. 
his son will be in high school, I believe, in the fall of 2023. And so even if he's stretching it, he would be three more years left. And I, I think like the, the, the idea would be for him to get into coaching before then. And so, I mean, we could be talking about 2021 or 2022. I think it's more likely Brady plays longer than Rivers. Question number two from Don Tuna. That's at Cold Beer Bubba, who was the first coach fired this year. And please don't, please tell me it is Dan Quinn. Uh, Cold Beer, I, I actually think Dan Quinn's got a chance to have a pretty good team this year. That environment in the AFC South, in the NFC South, is going to be difficult. No question about it. I think even the Panthers could be a tough out just based on what Matt Rule is building there. They're not where they need to be. They're probably still a year or two away from a roster standpoint, but I think they're going to be difficult to deal with for teams in 2020. And you know, then you've got the Buccaneers with Brady now and a, a pretty good roster and the Saints, who I think might have the best roster in the league. Um, and so it's going to be tough for the Falcons, but I do think that they're in a position to contend this year, and they're at least a 500 team. And I think Dan Quinn, you know, I, like obviously because you know he and 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 Doug Marone and, and Jacksonville are the two that sort of have been twisting in the wind a little bit, or were twisting in the wind a little bit at the end of last year and survived. Those are the two names everybody's sort of keeping an eye on. I think that there's a likelihood that Quinn makes it to at least to the end of the season. I guess Doug Marone would be the one where you would say if things go bad early, maybe they pull the plug because there could be bigger changes coming there in 2021. Question number three from LucasSam19. That's at LucasSam19. And here's a Jacksonville question for you. Do you think Gardner Minshew has what it takes to be a franchise quarterback? Luca, it's a fair question to ask the reason why. The Jaguars basically pressed pause on the quarterback position to find that out in 2020. They didn't draft one. They were in position to move up to get one if they had really wanted one. They had the ninth overall pick, a second first-round pick. They were within shouting distance of you know going and getting a Justin Herbert or a Tua Tungvaloa. They didn't do that. There's also been plenty of opportunity in the veteran market to get better. They wind up bringing in a guy in Mike Clennon who's very clearly the backup. And so everything's been set up to try to make it work for Gardner Minshew. A big part of what they're doing this year, of course, is trying to clean, like, to clear the financial decks. And so they want to be in a position where they'll, you know, be able to have, you know, a, be in a strong position to, to to build back up in 2021. Um, and they certainly, you know, the, dra- the draft capital will put them in that position too. They've got the Rams' first round pick next year. I think Gardner Minshew gets the year to figure it out. I would say the odds are against him being a franchise quarterback based on his physical skills, based on where he was drafted. I just think, like, I don't know. I think there's a pretty good chance the Jaguars are a team set to draft a quarterback in 2021. Question number four is from Antonio Vidal at Giants Vidal. 1027, will Nate Solder move to right tackle? Now, this is an interesting question just because of who the Giants drafted. And I had thought like maybe Tristan Wirfs would be a player they would look at as maybe a left tackle of the future. And you slot him in at right tackle for now. And then eventually he either moves over to left tackle or you find a replacement for Nate Solder. The other guys like Jedrick Wills, he had those same same questions. Makai Beckton, I don't think they were touching him because of sort of the, the, the questions about character and everything else. The fact that they drafted Andrew Thomas tells you that they could, that gives them the flexibility to do what they want here. <clears throat> they could because Thomas has played a little bit on the right side, put him on the right side, leave Nate Solder on the left. They could 
play Andrew Thomas on the left side, which was his primary position at Georgia, and move Nate Solder to the right, where he played earlier in his career. So they've got great flexibility that way. My guess would be they start training camp with Nate Solder at left tackle, with Andrew Thomas at right tackle, and potentially flip them somewhere along the lines. Um, I think before the end of the year, Andrew Thomas will be the left tackle because that's his long-term position there. Question number five from J.R. Willis. That's at the Willis Factor. Have the Eagles done enough this offseason to become Super Bowl contenders? Well, they had the receiver need. They drafted uh, Jalen Rager in the first round. They hit the corner need. They wind up drafting or they wind up trading for Darius Slay. And they, they draft Jalen Hurts in the second round, which you know addresses the quarterback depth issue. Look, this is a really good roster going into last year. And I know that there have been some people that have kind of, I guess, talked about them in a different way going into 2020. I still think a lot of the reasons why so many of us liked their roster so much in 2019, a lot of those still exist. They've got the young quarterback. They've got a stud young running back that I think has a – chance to break out this year in Miles Sanders. They've got one of the best tight ends in football in Zach Ertz. They do have some depth at receiver. We'll see what happens with Arkega Whiteside, um, but he's somebody maybe you watch and, and maybe he develops a little bit. To me, like the one pivotal position for them is really going to be left tackle and what happens with Andre Dillard. Is Dillard the answer long-term at left tackle? I I just, I, my sense is there's a little doubt there. We'll see what happens long-term, but I do think that they've got the infrastructure right now to compete for a Super Bowl in 2020 because the infrastructure is relatively similar to the infrastructure last year, and they were able to address two big needs with a first-round pick and a big-ticket veteran acquisition. Finally, question number six from New York Brett. That's at New York Brett. Why is Larry Warford still unsigned? And this, I know like a lot of people probably aren't excited about Larry Warford's free agency, but it's sort of an interesting aspect to the way free agency worked this year, the way some things with veteran players worked this year, where Larry Warford made three Pro Bowls in his three years as a Saint. His number is relatively high. So there were some questions about whether or not um, he was going to be there long-term. And the Saints, because they're in such a win-now spot, had to make sure that they were okay at the position. The thing is, their salary cap situation has been, I would say, complicated this offseason. And so they had to make a – if they were going to create some space, Larry Warford was one place where they could find that space. Well, what do you do to replace him? You can't go and get a veteran because that's going to cost you too much money. You're not fixing your salary cap situation. What do you do? Well – you hope that maybe somebody you like emerges in the draft process who can play the position to take care of the hole that would be created by losing Warford, especially when you consider how important the interior line positions traditionally have been for the Saints because they've got a shorter quarterback in Drew Brees who needs throwing lanes. So I think what's complicated, like I think Larry Warford would be signed if he had been out there in March, and it sort of sucks for him because the Saints had to wait and see why like is there like like they they just sit there and wait and see is there a guy a guard or a center out there that we can go and get that's going to uh, that's going to fix that that's going to fill that hole and so they get that guy in Caesar Ruiz that means you leave where Larry Warford out there and the reason now he's still out there isn't because he can't play 
more than anything else is because a lot of the team needs have been filled and a lot of cap space has been used. Appreciate you guys coming out as always. And I want your feedback on the way we're doing the show now. This is the second time in three weeks we've done it this way with Gresh chumping in on the takeaways. That's always been, that's always a lot of fun. And then having our guests is the second part of it. And of course, answering all your questions in the mailbag. So please get me your feedback. You know where to get me on social. At Twitter, at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram. You also know how to subscribe to all of our podcasts because we're all over the place on that. Um, if you guys want my podcast, Jenny and Connor's Weekside Podcast, Gary's Podcast on Monday morning, it's not hard to find. You can find us on Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts. Just bang that subscribe button. You get all of us in one place. Appreciate you guys coming out. As always, same time next week. I'll see you guys then. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.